0: It's Minnesota Now. I'm Kathy Worzer. What should we talk about today? How about the impending winter storm? It's due to be a whopper. Meteorologist Sven Sundgard has the latest. We'll hear from a lawmaker spearheading the efforts to legalize sports betting, and recreational cannabis in Minnesota. He'll join us during a committee meeting. at the pandemic the number of people living with domestic violence was surging and its rise has yet to drop we'll talk to a physician about how she tries to help we'll continue our series on how to have fun in the winter with a conversation about curling is that the winter sport for you our guest will take us on the ice and the creative force behind the comic strip curbside has a new graphic novel out about marriage his marriage what insights can he share we'll ask him all of that
1: and the minnesota music minute it comes your way right after the news Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Russian President Vladimir Putin says his country is suspending its participation in the new START treaty with the United States. And Piers Jeff Brumfield says the suspension is the latest blow to arms control between the two superpowers.
2: The New START treaty sets limits on the number of nuclear weapons the U.S. and Russia are allowed to deploy. It's set to run through February of 2026, but both the pandemic and the war in Ukraine have created problems for the treaty. Required inspections of nuclear weapons came to a halt when COVID-19 started to spread and never resumed. Russia canceled a meeting with the U.S. to discuss reviving the inspection process late last year and last month, the U.S. found Russia in violation of the treaty. The suspension of New START comes just a few years after the U.S. and Russia ended two other treaties designed to limit the danger of nuclear weapons. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News, Washington.
1: President Biden returned today to the Royal Castle in Poland, where he spoke a year ago as Russia had begun its invasion of Ukraine. Standing before a cheering crowd, Biden warned of hard and bitter days ahead, but he pledged continued NATO support for Ukraine and justice for those behind war atrocities.
3: We'll hold accountable those who are responsible for this war and will seek justice for the war crimes and crimes against humanity continuing to be committed by the Russians.
1: Biden delivered his speech a day after he made an unannounced trip to the Ukrainian capital. During a part of his visit, sirens wailed, underscoring the immense risk the president faced in traveling to a region under Russian attack. The White House says it gave Russia a heads up about Biden's visit to Kyiv hours ahead for deconfliction purposes. Snow, freezing rain, strong winds, and record high temperatures are hitting parts of the U.S. all at once. It's affecting large portions of the country. NPR's Kristen Wright reports the harsh conditions are forecast to pick up even greater strength throughout the week. Heavy snow and blizzard conditions are forecast to be the worst
4: across the Rockies, Northern Plains, and Upper Midwest. Well over a foot is expected in parts of Minnesota and Wisconsin over the coming days. Frank Pereira is a meteorologist with the National Weather Service.
5: We have pretty high confidence that this winter storm is going to be extremely disruptive to travel, infrastructure, livestock and recreation in the affected areas.
4: Out west, dangerous winds and wind chills are possible by midweek as temperatures climb to 40 degrees above normal in the mid-Atlantic, including 80 degrees forecast in Washington, D.C. for Thursday. Christian Wright, NPR News.
1: The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency spearheading a toxic chemical cleanup from a train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, earlier this month, and the EPA says Norfolk Southern will pay for it. Federal regulators warn Norfolk that if it fails to comply with the order, which includes taking all available measures to clean up contaminated air and water, EPA will do the work itself and charge triple. This is NPR News.
6: Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Subaru. Introducing the 2023 Solterra, an all-electric, zero-emissions SUV with the standard capability of symmetrical all-wheel drive. Learn more at Subaru.com slash Solterra.
0: Around Minnesota right now, skies are partly to mostly cloudy. Snow is on the way. It's snowing right now in Sioux Falls and Worthington. That's the leading edge of what is looking like a monster snowstorm. At noon in Bemidji, it's sunny and zero. It's sunny and 14 in Winona. And outside the Iron Range Eatery in Crosby, Minnesota, it's sunny and eight above. I'm Kathy Worser with Minnesota News Headlines. Governor Tim Wall says he has already issued emergency orders to the National Guard, the Minnesota State Patrol, and other agencies in advance of a potentially record-setting winter storm. Wall spoke at a brief press availability this morning and said he hopes Minnesotans will heed the warnings and stay off the road, but that the state was ready to help respond to emergencies.
5: And what they'll do now is they'll start to preposition their equipment. They'll start to put folks on alert. Doesn't mean they'll bring them in, doesn't mean they'll put them on, but they're starting to alert the numbers that they're going to need. Those folks will be getting those calls this morning since we put that out. They'll be ready to go. And as this thing starts to materialize, then we cut off all that pre-planning is already done.
0: Lawmakers also prepared to recess until next Monday after today so that lawmakers and staff won't have to travel to the Capitol if the storm blocks roads. The Minnesota State High School League says it's going ahead with the state girls hockey tournament and the state gymnastics competition in St. Paul despite the storm. League officials have told competing teams and their fans to make travel plans according to the weather So outstate teams like War Road, Hermantown Proctor, Laverne, and Moorhead are leaving today to be in place by tomorrow, the start of the girls' hockey tourney at the X in St. Paul. In other news, Democrats in the state state legislature unveiled a new bill today that would legalize sports betting in the state. DFL Representative Zach Stevenson of Coon Rapids says the bill would give each tribal casino across the state the ability to launch its own sports betting operation. People would also be able to place bets online. Proceeds would be used to fund gambling oversight, youth sports, and help for problem gamblers. But of course, the story we're talking about, and you will too, especially by Thursday, will be the potentially historic winter storm that's incoming 20-plus inches of snow and 45- to 50-mile-an-hour winds should get your attention. Joining us, fresh from a lovely vacation and just in time for the storm, is our meteorologist, Sven Sundgaard. Hey, welcome back.
7: Hey, thanks for having me. I I can't complain, I guess. I got recharged a bit.
0: Good. I'm glad. And then right in time. Your timing is excellent. So um, I mentioned about 20 inches in in our lead to the conversation here. Who is likely to see 20 inches?
7: You know, the Twin Cities is in the thick of that. It could be us uh, anywhere from Marshall to Glencoe, you know, Mankato, Rochester, and the Twin Cities. Really, we are in the bullseye of this system. And it's going to be a range of on the low end in that heavy swath maybe 14 inches. That's still very significant, but there could be some isolated spots that get up to two feet. So that's kind of the range we're dealing with here. And it's going to depend specifically on the ratio of snow to water. This is not going to be a 10 to one event. It's probably going to average out to be about 16 to one. So you take what is already an impressive storm with lots of moisture over an inch of water. You multiply that by 16 you get how we get to these pretty incredible numbers here by the time it wraps up midday Thursday.
0: Wow. Okay. So I just uh, was looking at some traffic management cameras out West. looks like Hendricks, Minnesota, Sioux Falls, Worthington. They're getting the snow right now. When might it be in the Twin Mm -hmm. Cities metro area?
7: Yes. As you mentioned, it's mostly the Southwestern counties right now, uh, Wyndham, Jackson, towards Marshall, mostly West of the Minnesota river. Uh, We can expect it to slowly crawl East this afternoon, probably making its way into the Twin Cities by between 2, maybe as late as 3, 3.30 p.m. this afternoon, but it does look as though for that evening commute, it will be snowing, uh, and some of the heavier uh, snowfall with this first round, it is coming in two rounds, this storm, but this first round will probably be in that 4 to 7 p.m. time frame, so we won't have a lot of snow on the ground or the roads yet for the evening commute, but it will be snowing, so anticipate it being pretty slow then and with this first round we're looking at probably a good four to seven inches uh, for most of from redwood falls through the twin cities maybe slightly less around st cloud just north of it four to six you get further north quite a bit less two to three around Brainerd, and then south also a little bit less rochester maybe three to four inches and only about an inch in albert lee so again with this first round too it's going to be that swath of, of marshall redwood falls through glencoe and the twin cities that we get the heaviest
0: and don't be fooled because the second round is coming.
7: Yeah, you know, it's it's important that people pay attention to the specific information of the storm because you might see tomorrow morning, mid-morning, the snow lightens up or maybe even briefly stops and say, well, well I only got six inches of snow. Well, that's just the first round. Uh, we'll get a bit of a midday lull. Not a complete break, but then as we head into the late afternoon, yeah, the snowfall rates really pick up, and it's the second round that's going to be the real doozy here. That's where we're going to see the heaviest snowfall up to one to even three inch per hour snowfall rates are going to be possible in some of the heavier bursts, and where that heaviest band sets up is still a little bit of a question. So that's why we're going to see that range of 14 to as much as 24 inches of snow. By tomorrow afternoon, we'll, we'll really know where that very narrow area of heavy snow sets up, but That second round is going to dump a foot to a foot and a half of snow from similar areas, Redwood Falls, through the Twin Cities, into western Wisconsin. And this is when we'll see places like Duluth get in on a little bit more of the snow, two to four inches of snow there. And they're looking at a potential total when you add up the two rounds for places like Duluth of probably eight to ten inches, still a significant storm by any measure, but significantly less than what we're going to see here in the southern half of the state.
0: saw that um, guidance from NOAA earlier this morning about, you know, how they have storm impacts Mm -hmm. in their categories. There's like from zero to five and the Twin Cities is in what the extreme impact category, actually a swath of uh, from western through central Minnesota into the Twin Cities. Have you ever seen that before?
7: No and you know uh, th- this is something new that they've been trying for the last several years and this is the first time that they've ever had the twin cities in that extreme impact their highest level that means travel will be next to impossible tomorrow night into early Thursday so we really want to stress to folks you know whether this is the second biggest snowstorm or the fourth biggest snowstorm in twin cities history this is something that most of us haven't dealt with in over 3 decades if you were under the age of 32 you've never seen a storm like this and this is probably going to beat the 2010 Storm that took down the Metrodome roof. So this is something to really take seriously. Flights are going to be canceled. There's going to be probably a backlog of that. And roads are going to be just nearly impossible across southern Minnesota. And even though the snow will stop around lunchtime on Thursday, it's going to take some time to really clear up those roads, especially since it's going to get pretty cold here Thursday night into early Friday.
0: And I believe that the Dome Buster, wasn't that 17
7: inches? 17.1. And it mm-hmm. does look as though we're likely to beat that.
0: All right. Well, we will keep track of it. I know you will and the other meteorologists. Thank you so much for this early update.
7: You're very welcome, Kathy.
0: We've been talking to meteorologist Sven Sundgard. for our Minnesota Music Minute. This is the song You Ought to Be Satisfied now by the Twin Cities musician Janatha Brooke. You can find more of Janatha's music at janathabrooke.com.
8: You jacked me up and you run me down You nagged me and you bawled me out You made me leave town and now I'm Frisco-bound You took my silver, you took my gold You made me believe every lie that you told Then you left me standing out there in the cold You ought to be satisfied now ought to be satisfied now
0: 1212 12 here on Minnesota Now from NPR News, I'm Kathy Worzer. At this point, we all know that there are countless effects of the pandemic that started in 2020. Have you heard of what experts are calling the shadow pandemic? It's the sharp rise in domestic violence that's taken place all over the country in the past few years, and it's a very real safety concern. We have Mayo Clinic family physician Dr. Sheree Allen back with us to talk about how she talks with patients who may be dealing with domestic abuse. So nice to hear your voice. It's been a while. How have you been?
3: It has been a while. It's so great to be
0: here with you again, Kathy. Thank you. Thanks for for finding the time here. Well, let's begin with the problem. Um, How much has domestic abuse cases gone up since the pandemic started? Do we know?
3: Yes, uh, we do. We have some numbers. So I think the first thing uh, to understand when we're putting this in context is that uh, domestic violence is often underreported. So as alarming as the numbers are, you know, the problem, the magnitude of the problem may actually be even more. But according to the National Commission on COVID-19 and Criminal Justice, they've seen an increase in up to 8.1% following some of the lockdown orders in uh, 2020. But there was actually an article in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine showing some global numbers, upwards of 25 to 33% increase in domestic violence cases.
0: Is it because of the lockdowns that people had to, they they were stuck together in a sense?
3: So we can't say because of the lockdowns, right? I think it, it had its place. Um, it Certainly was needed um, for public health interventions, but I think there were some unintended uh, consequences. You know, things like um, increased financial stressors um, due to the lockdown, increased childcare burdens, which we've spoken about, and this has been very well documented too, childcare burdens. Um, also thinking of loss of space, Um, with, you know, the people you are most at risk with, right, leaving and going to work or going to school creates some of that distance and puts you in contact with other people where you're able to ask more readily for help. But now if you're um, kind of all stuck at home, you're in a different situation. So Mm -hmm. it's multifactorial.
0: Are those numbers as high, even though the pandemic isn't forcing everyone to stay home anymore?
3: So, you know, data lags, and so, you know, now that we're kind of coming down from that, I'm curious to see what the numbers look like at this point, but data lags quite a bit. So we're still looking more at the 2020, 21, and early 22 data. What worries
0: you the most about this rise in physical abuse? Mm.
3: You know, I think I'm most concerned about victims being able to ask for help. Right. Asking for the help that they need and fearing what they are at risk of losing if they do ask for help. Because, again, you know, we're thinking increased financial stressors, um, economic uh, stressors, job security has changed for a lot of people. I think there's uh, a lot more at stake. And so I worry that victims may think twice um, about reaching out.
0: Now, you as a physician, you are um, you must report abuse when you see it. Um, I'm curious about what what signs do you look for in your patients? Mm
3: -hmm. So from the physician side of things, when I have the opportunity to have patients in front of me, I ensure that I have a conversation directly with that patient, right? So even if it means we need to call in uh, an interpreter service, we need to excuse a guest or a a family member or a friend who's accompanied them to the visit and just have a private conversation, I think it's important to hear directly from a patient. If someone's always speaking up for them, answering questions for them, they're not making good eye contact, you know, even if you're doing your physical exam and and you're like, oh, how'd you get this bruise here? Or you know, um, I think those are the the subtle signs that lead us to having a deeper conversation.
0: But of course, not all abuse is physical, you know. Yes. As you know, yep. and I'm wondering then, how do you suss out uh, emotional abuse? Can you do that as a physician in just a, such a short time that you have the patient
3: with you? It is. It's hard. It's possible, but it is hard. I think it's best. Um, and you know, shameless plug here for family medicine. but when you have the opportunity to develop a rapport with your patients and build that longitudinal relationship, They know you, they trust you, you've seen them in good times, and so you're kind of able to pick up on when something's off, um, whether it may be an issue of uh, domestic violence or not. Um, You can say, you know, you're not quite yourself today, like what's going on? Can we talk a little more? So you can, but it's very hard and it requires you asking the tough questions even in an uncomfortable situation. You know,
0: I'm, I'm sure you have advice for folks who are currently in an abusive relationship, and maybe they might be listening here today. What steps should they take?
3: So, I think it's a few things are important, right? If your life is in danger, um, you know, in the state of Minnesota, um, on average, the past few years, around 20 individuals are killed each year by intimate partner violence um, in this state. So um, this is a situation where you do need to speak up. So if your life is in imminent danger, you call 911, right? Like you call for help immediately. But there is, um, there are also other really good resources in this state, specifically uh, the Minnesota Day One Crisis Line. And their number is 866-223-1111. So giving them a call, they can help you to access some of the resources. So not necessarily an emergency, but you do need help with a plan. Um, They can help you um, in that regard here in Minnesota.
0: Um, We've all been in relationships where there are certain uh, uncomfortable flags. Something doesn't feel right, right? Mm -hmm. Um, What are some of the warning signs that people can look out for early on in a relationship to, to keep themselves safe?
3: Yes, there are some of those signs, as you've mentioned. There's a good website too, thehotline.org, that I think does a wonderful job talking about a lot of this. But, you know, some of those like always criticizing, always telling you that you're never doing anything right. You know, um, extreme jealousy when you're spending time either with friends or away um, from that individual and discouraging you actively from spending time with others. Um, And some of the insults, you know, the shaming, the demeaning, especially in front of other people. I think some of those big, big signs and then another big one, controlling finances. Um, to in the home without any sort of discussion or taking into account your needs. I think some of those are some of those early, early signs to look out for.
0: Kind of a personal question here, but how often do you deal with patients who are physically abused? Do you see it a lot?
3: It varies. It, it, it varies. Um, you know, some of these cases, as I mentioned, I'm in the clinic in, uh, family medicine. Many of these cases end up in the emergency rooms, um, oftentimes. And so my exposure there is, is quite limited on that end, but helping patients to, uh, regain traction in their lives as they start to reestablish, um, their lives away from abusers, we see more of that, um, in the clinic. Mm.
0: And thank you for your work, too. And thanks for the information.
3: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So again, please um, keep that number, record it, share it with a friend, or simply the website, thehotline.org, I think does a great job um, outlining a lot of this.
0: All right. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Doctor.
3: Thanks for having me, Kathy.
0: Dr. Jaysheree Allen is a family medicine physician at Mayo Clinic and host of the podcast Millennial Health. You can check it out wherever you get your podcasts.
7: Programming is supported by the Minneapolis Institute of Art, offering inspiration, community space, family fun, date nights, and galleries to unwind and relax. Everyone is welcome. Always artsmia.org.
0: Say so coming up on the other side of this break, we're going to be talking to the chief author of a new bill that was introduced today in the legislature that would legalize sports betting in the state of Minnesota. That's been an issue that the that lawmakers have talked about over many sessions. So we'll talk to this year's chief author about whether he thinks this bill could pass this session. It's twelve Let's get a news update right now from Emily Bright. Hey, Emily.
4: Hi, Kathy. President Joe Biden in Poland after his lightning trip to Ukraine is declaring that there are, quote, hard and bitter days ahead. In fighting off Russia's invasion. But he's pledging that the United States and its allies will have Ukraine's back as the war enters its second year. The conflict has left tens of thousands of people dead, it devastated Ukraine's infrastructure system, and wreaked havoc on the global economy. The Supreme Court is taking up its first case about a federal law credited with helping create the modern internet. The law shields Google, Twitter, Facebook, and other companies from lawsuits over content posted on their sites by others. The justices are hearing arguments today about whether the family of a terrorism victim from California, who was killed in Paris, can sue Google for helping extremists spread their message. The case is the court's first look at Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, adopted early in the Internet age, to protect companies from being sued over information their users post online. The companies say the law has encouraged the removal of harmful content. Federal environmental regulators have taken charge of the cleanup of the East Palestine, Ohio, train derailment and chemical burn and ordered Norfolk Southern to foot the bill. The Environmental Protection Agency told Norfolk Southern to take all available measures to clean up contaminated air and water, warning that if it failed to comply, the agency would perform the work itself and seek triple damages from the company. And Minnesota, as well as much of the upper Midwest, is bracing for a historic winter storm that begins this afternoon and continues through Thursday. In Minnesota, a swath of the state that includes the Twin Cities, Marshall, Glencoe, and Mankato could receive 14 inches up to two feet of snow through Thursday. Duluth will see eight to ten inches. The snow will be followed by bitter cold Thursday night, with temperatures in much of the state falling near or below negative double digits. We'll have more news at 1 on NPR News. Thank you, Emily. By the way, St. Paul just closed schools for the rest of the week. E-learning days tomorrow
0: and Thursday. There's a snow day on Friday. That's sent to parents in the St. Paul public schools via text. Just heard about that. I'm sure we're going to hear about more schools closing here in the coming days. Glad you're with us here. This is Minnesota Now. Well, if you wanted to bet on the Super Bowl the other weekend legally, you would have had to cross the border to Wisconsin, Iowa, or South Dakota. Sports betting is not legal in Minnesota, but the House Commerce Committee will consider a bill today that would legalize sports betting in Minnesota. There was a news conference about the bill this morning. DFL State Representative Jack Stevenson is the chief author of that bill. He's on the line right now. Welcome to the program, Mr. Chair. How are you?
5: I'm well, how are you, Kathy?
0: Good. Thanks for being here. Say, before we dive into your version of the bill, this issue's been around for a long while. It's gotten stalled along the way. Why is it important that Minnesota legalize sports betting when there are popular apps and websites available like DraftKings and FanDuel?
5: Yeah, well, the issue is that uh, uh, all of our neighbor states and 30 states overall have legalized sports betting. This is an issue that's been coming across the entire country that people would like the opportunity to do here in Minnesota. In fact, people can do it illegally in Minnesota right now very easily by using offshore uh, websites. So we want a safe, legitimate market here in in Minnesota that has consumer protections and that treats the issue of problem gaming with the seriousness that it deserves.
0: But if you legalize it to deal with problem gaming, isn't that enabling the behavior?
5: Well, I think the issue is that problem gaming is going to happen uh, regardless. And it, you can either be honest about it and deal with it in an appropriate downstream uh, way by uh, having uh, prevention, treatment, and education, um, and by having consumer protections uh, enables us to exclude people who have prior problem gaming problems uh, from the program, or uh, we can continue with an illicit marketplace where people who have um, uh, issues with gaming uh, don't get the resources and help uh, they need. And frankly, there's a stigma around it, uh, and I'd rather it be out in the open where we can deal with it more honestly.
0: In the past, as you know, there's been tribal gaming opposition to sports betting, but a letter sent to you from the head of MYGA, the Minnesota Indian Gaming Association, seems to indicate support. Under your bill, would the tribes control sports betting? Is that how you get buy-in?
5: So we have uh, uh, an arrangement where the 11 sovereign tribes in Minnesota would each be offered a license uh, to operate sports betting. That makes sense because the tribes are the most successful, longest running, safest, most heavily regulated gambling operators uh, in the state of Minnesota. And, you know, when this issue first came uh, uh, to my uh, uh, purview as chair of the Commerce Committee, what I did was I, I traveled the state. I visited all 11 of the sovereign tribes in Minnesota. And I talked to our professional sports teams. I talked uh, to the racetracks. I talked to the university. I talked to problem gaming groups. And I tried to build as much consensus as I can. And that's, I think, why we have a bill today that has a, a pretty broad level of stakeholder. Uh, support. I mean, you mentioned uh, the, the 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 tribes, but also Minnesota's professional sports teams. All of our professional sports teams uh, support the bill. Does the state
0: get a cut of revenue under this bill?
5: We would tax uh, the mobile sports betting at 10% of uh, of net revenue. But it's important to understand that sports betting is a high volume, low margin business, uh, which means this isn't going to be a really significant revenue driver for the state. And that's not the reason to legalize sports betting. Uh, on average, this is going to generate 10 to $12 million a year for the state. In the context of a $60 billion budget, that's not a, a huge amount of money. Uh, what we will do with that money is, is put it towards things that are kind of directly related. One, about 40% of the money generated by the bill would go to treat uh, and do education and prevention around problem gaming. Another 40% of the money would go to youth sports, in particularly areas that have Uh, high levels of juvenile crime, because uh, we know that when kids are busy playing sports, they're not busy getting into trouble doing other things. And the balance of the money would go to fund the regulation and consumer protections that are necessary to make sure this is a safe uh, product for Minnesotans to participate in.
0: So I notice, uh, as I'm quickly going through the bill here, Canterbury Park and the Harness Track seem shut out of this deal. Why is that?
5: Well, again, I think the issue here is this would be the most significant expansion of of gaming in the state of Minnesota uh, since the tribal compacts were signed uh, about 30 years ago. And so when I put the bill together, the question was, who makes sense to work with for this significant expansion? And I think the entities that have the most experience, have the most success, are the most highly regulated, regulated, are the tribes. They're also geographically dispersed throughout the state. Uh, in rural Minnesota and closer into the metro, so I think they make sense as a partner.
0: Um, could there be a point, though, where Canterbury and the Hardest Track are cut in on the deal at all, or is, are they completely out in the cold?
5: We're we're going to keep talking to everybody. I will tell you that there's a lot of resistance to the capital of expanding uh, gambling uh, at the uh, at the tracks and other places. I'll also note if, uh, that you know the 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 letter of support uh, that the professional supports teams gave in support of uh, my bill indicates that if anybody else uh, was able to do it other than the tribes and they want to do it too in other words if if we were to include the tracks in the sports betting bill then we should also include the teams that's their position so then you're really talking about expanding this much further than i think most legislators would be comfortable with so I, i don't anticipate seeing expanded gaming at the tracks as a result of this bill
0: so let me ask you last year legalized sports betting stalled in the senate are you pretty confident you have the votes this time around
5: you know, there's a lot of new faces in the Senate, so we're going to have a lot of conversations, but I think we have good momentum there. My uh, Senate counterpart who's carrying the bill, Senator Klein, is working hard, uh, and I'm optimistic that it will get it done.
0: I'd like to change topics for a moment because you're also the chief author of the bill that would legalize cannabis in Minnesota, recreational cannabis, and that was in the House Finance and Policy Committee today. One issue that came up was keeping medical and recreational marijuana separate. Can you speak to why that decision was made?
5: So we really want to keep a good medical program in Minnesota, and the reason for that is pretty straightforward. There are people for whom the adult market doesn't, wouldn't work. One example is children. You know, there are uh, children who have terrible seizure uh, disorders, for example, uh, that are effectively treated with cannabis. And if we allow the medical program to go away, uh, those kids are not going to have ac- access to the medicine they need to have a good quality of life. So it's really important for us to continue the medical uh, program. Uh, going into the future and, and make sure we stabilize it because in states that have legalized adult use cannabis, there have been some challenges for the continued existence of the medical program.
0: As you know, some local governments are concerned. Are there concerns uh, to enact tougher restrictions included in the bill?
5: Yeah. So what we have done here is established a system of really strong regulation that's primarily at the state level. That way, there is a consistent approach across the other the entire state. Other states that have legalized cannabis have allowed local communities, counties, cities to opt out and say, I'm sorry, we're not going to have any cannabis in in this county. What that does is it really feeds uh, the illicit marketplace. Uh, It gives them a place where they can thrive. And one of the goals of this bill is uh, to transition from an illicit marketplace to a legitimate marketplace. So we want that regulation at the state level. At the same time, we know that local units of governments, cities and counties are probably better positioned to do some of the enforcement work. You know, making sure that dispensaries aren't selling to kids, making sure that dispensaries aren't selling products that aren't uh, approved for sale by the statewide agency. So there's a dual approach here where the state does a lot of the uh, the regulation and then we partner with our local units of government on enforcement. Some happening at the state level, some happening at the local level.
0: Because there was the, the mess uh, last year when it came to THC and the state kind of let the local governments deal with it on their own. Would this put the existing edible beverage hemp drive THC producers out of business?
5: No, it would not put them out of business. It would create a regulated marketplace around them that would solve some of the problems that have cropped up uh, since uh, that bill passed last year. So, for example, uh, we would move those uh, those edible products, the gummies, behind the counter in establishments uh, so to try and limit uh, youth access to it. But, you know, these products have proven very uh, popular with consumers and with businesses. And in fact, it has been a really positive thing for a lot of our craft breweries, the local breweries that are offering THC infused beverages. So we're we're not going to, that market is not going away. We just want to put some guardrails on it, some reasonable regulations and restrictions to make sure that we have safe products that are staying out of the hands of kids.
0: All right, Mr. Chairman, I know you're busy. Thanks for your time here this afternoon.
5: My pleasure. Anytime.
0: Representative Zach Stevenson is the chief author of a bill to legalize sports betting, another bill to legalize adult use cannabis in Minnesota on minnesota now this season we're finding joy in winter with our series winter play we're sharing stories about what brings minnesotans delight during these long snowy and cold winter months finding joy this time of the year is a must for living in minnesota and we can't talk about winter in the state without talking about curling some call minnesota the home of curling in this country. There are at least 23 curling clubs, and the sport is continuing to grow across the state. Jason Botterell understands the draw of the sport. He's the board president of the Dakota Curling Club located in Lakeville. He's on the line. Hey, Jason.
9: Hi. How in the world did you get started curling? I got into curling almost by happenstance. The club in Lakeville hosts our local high school teams. And my wife, who's a teacher, happened to have one of the students participating in that program come through her class and mention it. I've always liked watching curling on TV during the Olympics and things like that. And she mentioned that there was a curling club and uh, a couple minutes later with Google, found the club and found out that I could sign us up for an introductory league. And I think before she knew what was happening, we were were signed up with another couple friend of ours and, and ready to start our journey into curling.
0: Do you remember what it was like on that first day?
9: It was uh, exciting. It was intimidating. But we were welcomed in so graciously that we felt comfortable almost instantaneously. Uh, But like learning anything new, it was certainly something that we had to take our time with. But we had fun almost instantly.
0: You know, I've done curling once. I went to the St. Paul Curling Club for a story, and I remember getting on the ice and I fell so many times I had bruises up and down my, from my hip to my ankle bone. I just (laughs) thought I just wasn't, it was horribly embarrassing. Did you have that same experience or am I just a klutz?
9: Every single person who has ever curled for any extended period of time has fallen. And anybody who tells you differently is lying okay good it just is a fact of life (laughs) what equipment do you need if you're just starting out and you were showing up for your first introductory class typically you just need something that will keep you dressed appropriately for the temperature in the ice shed around 40 degrees so a really nice temperature especially in a minnesota winter and a clean pair of uh of athletic shoes that's everything that you'd need to get started clubs will provide the rest of the equipment but as you get into it, if you want, uh, you'd be looking to pick up your own set of curling shoes that are specially designed for curling and a a broom. Okay, now what kind of person would do well at curling? Just about anybody is the honest answer. I do a lot of the instructing at our club and I've found that the people that take to curling the easiest, the only common thread that i found, they tend to have a background in either uh, dance, what yoga, or gymnastics are the three oh. things that people have pointed to that oh, really have allowed them to excel. I
0: can see the gymnastics, given given uh, how you have to kind of drape yourself on the ice in a sense as you're yep. throwing the rock down. Is that called, is that right? The rock.
9: Yep, the rock or stone that they're used pretty much interchangeably.
0: Okay, as you're as you're kind of um, gliding it down the ice, it seems like you do need to be pretty uh, lithe, you know, to, you have to be pretty flexible.
9: And that's uh, one of the wonderful things about curling is even if you can't uh, get yourself folded up like a pretzel and get down on the ice like that, <laughs> uh, there's a ways that you can curl from a standing position and allows people from all walks of life, all ages, all, all different abilities to come and experience a sport, you know, for a lifetime.
0: How has curling changed the way you embrace winter?
9: Well, you know we uh, we know that winter is long and cold in Minnesota, and if we don't look forward to it for some reason, uh, it's going to be pretty miserable, of course. And so, prior to getting into curling, we would typically look at the winter season as board game season. We'd stay inside and we'd play a lot of board games. Now we go out. We are much more social. Curling is a very social sport. And we look forward to seeing the same people season after season, but week after week, and, and really enjoying a sense of community that we have throughout the winter months, and really look forward to seeing the people that we don't see as often during the summer months as we kind of head out to do our different summer activities, of course.
0: I have to say, going to a Bandspiel, it does there is a definite sense of camaraderie. It's quite fun.
9: Absolutely. Uh, as I, I describe a Bond spiel to any new curler as, it's a party over the weekend and there happens to be some curling.
0: <laughs> and just a little bit of adult beverage. <laughs> uh,
9: yeah, that it, it <laughs> tends to show up from time to time.
0: <laughs> and sometimes when you're actually on the ice. That's nice. Um, what's your advice for someone who has as you say, you watched it during the Olympics, and a lot of people do, and then they get really fired up, especially watching the Minnesota guys, you know. Um, and they, they look at this and they think, ah, oh, I wanna give it a shot. What's, what's your advice?
9: My best advice is come on out and try it. We offer learn to curl classes, which are a two hour introductory class to take somebody who's never even seen the sport of curling even from that point to having fun in two hours or less. I would say we've got a hundred percent success rate in that goal of everybody at the end of it is at least having fun with it. And from there, you can kind of take it as far as you want. If you want to go and compete and play in the Olympics, there's paths to get there. If you want to get together uh, your family or your friends and have something that gets you out of the house and, and meet new people over the course of the winter, You can turn it into really a very social outing, and it's a lot of fun that way. By the way, what do you love about curling? I love the people. There are those that know me that would say that I love the competition more, but really it's the people. All of the support, the camaraderie, and the friendships that we've made becoming part of this community and knowing that the curlers that you find not only in our club but across the state, across the country, we're all so like-minded in, in welcoming all comers that it, it's a huge community to be a part of almost overnight. And it's such a wonderful feeling to know that you can go to just about any club anywhere and feel just as welcome as you are at your home club.
0: Now the people are great, but when you watch curlers, like say John Schuster and his team, I mean, there is there is some intensity on the ice, right? And, and I, I don't understand the game very well, but I mean, they look like they're looking for angles and you've got to, you know, you've got to throw the rock down there just in a certain way. Is that kind of a fun part of the deal, too?
9: Absolutely. It's like a lot of other uh, sports like billiards or like golf in that there's ways that you're looking to execute things. And if everything went perfectly exactly how you want it to go every single time, quite frankly, it'd be a pretty boring sport it's really about figuring out how do you make the best out of the situations that are imperfect and trying to figure out a way that you can out strategize and out think and out execute your opponent it's not simply about being a bigger faster stronger athlete there's so much more to the strategy aspect of the game that it presents challenges to people not only on a physical level but also on an intellectual level to make it much more of a well-rounded sport
0: there's a lot of finesse to it. Absolutely. And By the way, do you have to be of a certain age? Or can you be uh, a more seasoned individual and still learn?
9: There is no age limit whatsoever. Uh, In fact, the Guinness World Record for world's oldest curler is north of 100. And she's still going strong up in Canada. (gasps) What? All right. There's hope
0: for me then. All right. (laughs) Jason, it sounds like an awful lot of fun. I, I might have to get back out and give it another shot.
9: Come on down and see us, and we'll make sure it's a fun time. (laughs) Jason, thank you for your time today. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a blast.
0: (laughs) Jason Botterill is the board president of the Dakota Curling Club in Lakeville. Now this weekend, there'll be a number of curlers gathering in Mapleton, Minnesota, for the Mixed State Championship. That's at the Heather Curling Club February 24th through the 26th. It's 1242 here on Minnesota Now. Well, I tell you what, it is time for a little bit of music. This is where we throw open the doors to the studio. Other DJs pick the music we listen to today. We're going to hear from Lady J. She's the host of the show Songs of the Soul on community radio station KFAI featuring blues and soul, R&B, funk, and jazz. She's fantastic. She always shares the story behind the band, so let's hear what she has to uh, play for us today.
1: Kathy, you're going to love this song. It's from 1967 and is by a band that was intended to only be a studio band for Stax Records. However, their popularity grew as Stax Records grew, and there was no holding back the bar They worked behind performers such as soul man Otis Redding and blues great Albert King. What you're going to hear is their breakout hit, soul finger.
0: selection lady J hosted the show songs of the soul on kfai broadcasting from south minneapolis
3: support comes from the walker presenting grammy-winning jazz vocalist cecile mclaurin salvant for ogress envisioned a musical journey of myth and song paired with new animation february 24th and 25th tickets at walkerart.org
0: if you've ever driven by the buffalo ridge in southwestern minnesota you'll see the horizon dotted with wind turbines It's been that way since 1994 when the first turbines were built. What makes that part of Minnesota the ideal location for harnessing the wind? And what is the Buffalo Ridge atop which the turbines do their work? Jim Cotter is professor of geology at the University of Minnesota Morris. Every month on Minnesota Now, Professor Cotter tells the story of our state through geology. Hey, welcome back. Thanks,
6: Kathy. It's nice to be back.
0: Explain to folks what is the Buffalo Ridge?
6: So it's a ridge, which is a linear hill um, in southeastern Minnesota, as you pointed out, that uh, generates a lot of wind. And it's known as being part of what's called Minnesota's wind belt. Uh, If you look at any map of either wind speeds or wind energy in Minnesota, Buffalo Ridge really stands out. There's over a thousand turbines up there.
0: All of western Minnesota is pretty windy. Uh, It must be a function of the elevation, right?
6: That's exactly right. Uh, It stands about 200 feet higher than either, say, uh, Lake Benton, which is north of it, or Pipestone, which is south of it. And as the air mass is forced up and over the ridge, it speeds up. It's kind of like putting your finger over the edge of a hose. The same volume has to come out, so it speeds up to do that.
0: I know there's a story, a geologic story behind the Buffalo Ridge. How did it form?
6: Yeah, that's right. Buffalo Ridge is, is just the Minnesota part of a very large feature that's mostly in eastern South Dakota and North Dakota called the Cotota Prairie. The Cotota Prairie is a flat iron shape, kind of a wedge, uh, that's over 200 miles from north to south and 70 miles wide from east to west. It's really a big feature. And its high point is about an elevation of 2,200 feet. And if you go from that high point down to, say, the Minnesota border or Big Stone Lake, you drop an elevation 1,000 feet. That's about 30 miles that that distance is. But when you think about it, the, the distance from Big Stone Lake down New Orleans is 1,000 feet. Mm-hmm. So it's really a lot of relief for the western part of Minnesota. So
0: talk about um, how this formed, uh, probably before glaciation,
6: right? Yeah, that's what most people think. It's an interesting kind of geologic problem that I think most people believe has been solved. It probably was a topographic high before glaciation, uh, probably a place where bedrock stood higher than the surrounding landscape. Once glaciation began, that bump would cause the glacier to deposit sediment around it. And over time, it built up enough material that it was large enough to actually split the glacier in half, and so a portion of it goes down the Minnesota River Valley uh, in western Minnesota, but the other part goes down the James River Valley in South Dakota. And this is something that's really unusual because most of the time, rivers flow together to join a larger river. There's a confluence of rivers and you make a bigger one. But this is a unique instance where actually two rivers split apart. And that's unusual, at least on Earth. On Mars, the Martian channels, their valleys split apart. And I once heard that as NASA started studying the Martian channels, they used the Kato as a model for how drainages might be split. It's really, really an interesting place.
0: Um, what does the Coteau look like for folks? Who can just can you describe it, and can you go out there and take a peek?
6: It really is a beautiful place to visit. It varies from place to place. In in Minnesota, the Buffalo Ridge part, it's a hill that's kind of subdued landscape, but rivers and. Creeks have cut these really interesting valleys into it. Um, the Prairie Coteau Scientific and Nature area really give a good sense of what the Minnesota part is. But in the north end of the Coteau, we're right at the North Dakota, South Dakota border, It Minnesotans would describe it as lake countries. There's lake upon lake upon lake. Uh, An example is is Pickerel Lake State Park in in South Dakota. It's a beautiful lake, um, and it has a really interesting geologic history. But the lakes are a little bit different in in South Dakota because of the high evaporation rates and because the bedrock is that salty Cretaceous Seaway I talked about a couple of months ago. Sometimes they turn salty, and sometimes they're a little bit redder than Minnesota lakes. Oh. It's just an interesting place to visit.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it. Well, I appreciate your time here, Dr. Carter. Cotter, thank you so much.
6: You're welcome, Kathy.
0: Jim Cotter is Professor of Geology at the University of Minnesota-Morris. It's 12.50 here on Minnesota Now. Here's a question for you. How does marriage define a relationship? St. Paul-based cartoonist Rob Kirby Russell's with this question in a new graphic memoir, Marry Me a Little, about his experience marrying his longtime partner, John. The two got hitched back in 2013, just after gay marriage was legalized in the state of Minnesota. Rob is best known for his comic strip, Curbside, which ran in dozens of LGBTQ and alternative papers in the U.S. and Canada from 1991 to 2008. His new book is out today. We get to celebrate together. (laughs) Hey, Rob. Welcome to the program.
2: Hey. Hey, thanks for having me.
0: I'm so pleased you could be with us. It might be kind of tough for some younger folks to imagine, but there was a time when gay marriage was a really contentious political issue uh, the vast majority of folks support it nowadays talk about what, what what was it like to live in the environment especially prior to 2013 you know politicians would fight about this issue on uh, in debate it um it got really contentious how do things feel different now 10 years later
2: well yeah i mean back then marriage rights to be honest i wasn't really on my radar that much it's simply I think it's my fatalistic streak talking. I just didn't think it was really gonna happen, even though it was slowly brewing. And um, when it suddenly began to happen, you know, when in it, it, it state by state, with Minnesota in 2013 being number 12, which I, we were very proud of. And then nationally, just a couple of years later being legal throughout, you know, the country, it was a whirlwind and a huge cultural shift and I, I'm very happy that younger people, for younger people now, it seems like a given. I mean, you know, we'll see what happens in the future. But for now, things seem fairly secure, I think.
0: How has your relationship and the idea of a successful marriage evolved over the years?
2: Well, I mean, I think I talk about it um, in the end of the book. Uh, you know, I I, I kind of sum up that uh, it's, a collection of, you know, little things and big things and arguments and quirks and private jokes and doubts and commitments and work and play and joy and grief. Yeah. Um, it uh, and that sums up to me what a relationship is. It, it's an accumulation of so many things, emotions and and occurrences and events, um, both in your purview and, and without and um, I hadn't pre-written any of that when I wrote that part of the book at, 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 in early or in the winter of 2022, I was wrapping up the book, um, but um, I was just trying to distill it all into like something simple, uh, something easily um, imparted. And that's what I came up with. And to me personally, for John and I, we've made it through and that's something to celebrate and that's marriage license or no marriage license.
0: I like the way you describe it. And then you have a phrase at the end of the book too day to day life stacking up into years gone by. That's really beautiful. and it does that does thank you really um reflect that, you know, what marriage can be. you You also write, you've been called unromantic, but you know what? I mean, writing a memoir about your love for someone feels really quite romantic. <laughs> Why do you want to put yourself and your partner on the stage that a memoir creates?
2: Well, I think I wrote about my experience through a personal lens because that's how I roll, you know, as an artist, a cartoonist, um, you know, and I think a dry historical account could definitely work. But I think um, any story is more interesting and more relatable when you personalize it. And um, I was writing more from a sense of ambivalence towards marriage at the outset um, rather than a starry-eyed sort of romanticism. But I think I my attitude in the book progresses from that ambivalence to a kind of wholehearted acceptance, Um, especially when I was standing in the lobby of the government center with uh, a a few near and dear ones around us pledging my vows. I mean, I got really caught up in the moment.
0: Marry Me a Little, of course, is also the title of a a charming and bittersweet musical review that features songs by Stephen Sondheim. I'm sure you know about it, right? Two singles share a Saturday night of very sweet fantasies about relationships and uh, they never leave uh, their solitary apartments. So, how does did you did you deliberately want to use that title, given the the Sondheim musical?
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it was just that because it's such a rich song, it has so much emotion. Like, what else? Again, my ambivalence and John's ambivalence about marriage. We just weren't really sure, like, if we it was something we really needed to do. Uh, it just it just summed it up best, and I just borrowed it. You know, thank you, Stephen Sondheim, for. <laughs> writing that amazing thing. And I hope that's cool that I borrowed your title. Um, <laughs> it <think laughs> you just find. said it all, didn't it? Yeah.
0: <laughs> One of the challenges in writing a memoir is uh, succumbing to doubt. Is my personal story interesting enough to hook readers? You know, did that pop up for you?
2: No, because I think that this, uh, and this, my experience has borne out, this out, marriage and weddings are, they are things that people have deep feelings about mm. and ambivalence is about and everyone has a story you know you've even if you're not married you've been to a wedding or you have you have loved ones that have gotten married um it is it is an endless source of fascination and and you know that's why i i even put in um some stuff about marriage from movies because I in in movies and popular culture it is heightened it's 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 there's drama inherent in, 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 a wedding. And they just, of course, play that up for farce or drama. And when in real life, it's mostly a, a lot of quotidian, you know, boring, you know, events, you know, setting up, f- picking the wine. is not exactly a dramatic thing, but I tried to make it, you know, humorous.
0: <laughs> or the flavor of the cake, that kind of thing.
2: So yeah, yeah.
0: what do you remember about your day, your wedding, looking back?
2: I remember, <laughs> I remember, again, when I was standing in the courthouse with Judge Cutter, and we were giving our vows, that's when I was, fu- I, that's when I fully gave over to it. Yes, this is, this is great, you know, and it was very surreal. It was very floaty through the whole thing. And then afterwards, having this wonderful dinner, you know, at at restaurant Alma in Minneapolis, mm. Our favorite restaurant, and with uh, more people joining us, um, it, it was just—it was a wonderful day, and and it, it's very special. And it was a really nice way to ritualize um, our relationship, you know, cement it, you know. Even though I will again, wedding—the uh, the wedding was great and you know all that, but our relationship was solid anyway. This just kind of like was kind of a public affirmation of it. A performance, a lo- maybe, if you will. I know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps. It was yes. it's a lovely book, Rob. Well done. Thank you so much.
2: Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Rob Kirby is a St. Paul-based cartoonist and the author of several books, including Marry Me a Little. He'll have a book reading, signing, and interview at Majors & Quinn Booksellers, 7 p.m., March the 16th. You can register on the Majors & Quinn website. Ah. Thank you so much for joining us here on Minnesota Now. That was quite a program. It always is. We appreciate you tuning in Monday through Thursdays here on NPR News.